Welcome to our episode of the Excel Podcast. Um, in this episode, today's guest is George Jules. Jules, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> I like the smile. You are good. You've just told me where you are. That's why you're feeling good. <laughs> I'm in a business today, uh, doing a bit of work, actually. Ironically, doing a bit of work here in my legal practice. Um, Normally, one would associate a beef with DJing, and of course, I've got this kind of dual identity as a uh, specialist music lawyer and DJ, um, probably better known uh, historically for the latter. But I've got a very big, um, quite a lot of clients here in Ibiza, so that's why I'm here at the moment. Fantastic. I mean, the, am I right in saying that's how your DJ name came about, Judge Jules? Is that through when you were studying or? Yeah, I mean, I didn't qualify to be a solicitor when I was younger. I did get a degree in law. I graduated when I was 21, um, using the law for all the wrong reasons, in fact, to put on illegal raves. And it was the <laughs> it was really the irony of that that caused my mates to give me that name. I think all, all nicknames stroke um, artistic monikers should be given... Uh, by your mates, I, 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 you know, I don't want to sort of insult anybody who created their own great uh, <laughs> kind of artistic identity. But I think there's something a bit more organic and a bit more um, genuine. I think where your mates have kind of just—I don't even remember the first day I was given that name. It just—it yeah. just started happening organically. Brilliant. So, well, see this podcast, like I was saying to you earlier, we just kind of start at the start and, and talk about your journey through music. Um, so, like, going back, what kind of age were you? Whereabouts were you when you first sort of found this passion for music or took an interest in music? I think most people who are DJs or indeed musicians probably had a passion going back as far as they could possibly remember. Uh, I certainly did. Uh, but I think where the passion really embeds itself is when you start hanging out in your mates' bedrooms and kind of sharing sharing tunes with one another. And obviously this is the pre kind of social media era and, and arguably I've got, a, I've got a 16 year old daughter who's every bit as passionate about music as I was kind of sharing music with her friends. But obviously you can, you've got kind of Spotify and stuff to share with at the same time she still sits in her bedroom and plays the music really loud and that that was my story you were just trying to outdo you're all really mad on tunes i've spent every last penny that i owned and didn't own in record shops and then you end up particularly on secondhand stuff trying to root out interesting old music and then you just try and outdo your mates around their bedrooms really yeah was it doing like mixtapes and swapping albums and taping albums and all that and seeing who could discover bands or whatever like you're saying to outdo each other yeah I, I, I suppose it was tapes yeah it was it was mixtapes I mean the mixing wasn't it was you know stop start mixing yeah, yeah. in the first instance uh, I only sort of really got some t some decks by when I was about 18 I'm kind of going back to when I was 15 or 16 yeah. but but it's, dare I say, it's kind of like outdoing your mates is what uh, it's all about. Yeah. What sort of bands and music or artists was you into back then? Well, when I was uh, when I was in sort of 15 and 16, I was into the kind of those sort of acts who were like the hybrid between dark, um, indie and electronica. So kind of blue, blue, new order. I was about to say blue Monday, new order, uh, and lots of other bands like that. They're probably one of the better known ones, but uh, lots of other bands who are just cutting that that hybrid where yeah. you've got kind of really synthesised. Synthesized drums and, and and synths, but maybe slightly more indie on the top, um, yeah. which kind of led me in more into black music. I wasn't brought, brought up with black music sort of uh, in my bedroom, even though ironically I went. I, I'm brought. I'm from London, and I went to quite a multiracial school. But it didn't really it didn't really register with me so much until I was uh, probably about seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, was it? Was it obviously that, like you said, you black music stuff, but was sort of New Order and the sort of electronic synth bands your sort of gateway into dance music or was that just your gateway into just like a love for music? No, I've been into music before then. No, it's my gateway into dance music. It's when you hear the big kick, um, you know, it's, it's all about the kick drum, isn't it, ultimately? Yeah. And when you, um, when you eventually get into clubs and the clubs were a lot less rigid about... Um, enforcing kind of 
age restrictions when I was 15 or 16. I was tall, I was six foot when I was 15 or 16. I don't think my face looked 18, but yeah, they, they were a lot less bothered then. And I think the epiphany, the moment of epiphany is when you actually hear, hear you know, that big kick drum and that bass in on a proper sound system. Yeah. And I think when I was going out then, it was just at the beginning of an era when clubs were starting to have semi-distant, decent sound systems. I mean, it's a kind of given now. You you would yeah. expect no less, but at the time, um, and in fact, dare I say it, with some of the very early gigs that I promoted, because I got into promoting very young, um, the sound systems were not as good as they are now, to put it mildly. Yeah. I mean, when you started going out, what what kind of age were you when you started going out clubbing? And was this before maybe like acid house electronic music's coming in? Are you seeing that coming in through your friends and the clubs that you're going to? It was before acid house. It was probably it was. Uh, in fact, I started putting on lots of um, warehouse parties in London. I teamed up with a bunch of other people. Norman Jay being one of the key uh, guys I teamed up with, and we put on lots of events i mean scores of events that were very successful probably in the kind of one to two and a half thousand capacity size um in illegal venues which is sort of semi how i got my name as i touched upon before um but the music the what we were playing some house but there wasn't it was right at the beginning of house so it was a a night was consist of some rare grooves some old school hip-hop and some house yeah um, which sounds like quite an incongruous range of tunes but you just played what you loved simple as and I yeah. here's hoping that DJ philosophy sort of pervades through now yeah I mean obviously back then it was just a big sort of mo- mash of just what the DJ liked and it was more accepted back then there wasn't like any sort of genres as such it was just a good night to be had and it was up to the DJs to to supply the soundtrack really wasn't it yeah and to try and join the dots I mean DJing ultimately is about a DJ set is about joining the dots you um if you if you fail to join the dots, you will you will sound disjointed and like you don't really know what you're doing. Whereas you can um, clever DJs. Um, I'm not saying I necessarily was one of them, but the DJs I respect most are the most capable of joining the dots and being a bit interesting and throwing different genres in the mix, but still making it all sound like it was intended to be that way. Yeah. What what was the thing that made you want to put on your own parties? What what was the sort of was there a defining moment? Or was it a, a lot of people that I've spoke to? It's almost like the record shop was was our, our internet back then. You know, that's where you met like-minded people and shared a love of music. What got you to to think, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to start my own events? How how did that come about? Um, I got into promoting my own events because uh, if I if had I even bothered to knock on the door of any club. They would have said, you know, do one, take a hike. <laughs> so if you can't, if you're not going to get the gigs, go and create the Make gigs your yourself. And the, and the irony is, at the age I started doing it, which is about 16, you've got the biggest social circle of your entire life. Yeah. So if I, you know, maybe you don't want a bunch of 16-year-olds in every club, but if, if actually if I was a sensible club owner in the West End of London, I would have said, yeah, come on, I'll give this guy a go because, um, yeah, he's got a bit of blag. But I never, I never tried to blag my way into clubland. It just didn't. Actually, I didn't. I wasn't. Uh, the whole sort of clubland vibe wasn't really my thing at first. I loved warehouse parties. I love. I love coming home muddy and dirty, and yeah. uh, you know, uh, going to a venue with dodgy power that was running off a streetlight and um, <laughs> with dodgy toilets. And, and you know, that's the sort of events I was putting on. And, and for for me and my mates, and obviously there was a very big circle of mates because when you're that age, you've got nothing to do. Yeah. So if somebody provides you with something to do, which we did, um, you can acquire a crowd really quickly. And, and it's a it's a sort of a, it's a lesson to anybody. You, it doesn't have um, the, the size of one's sort of um, social circle doesn't have to generate quickly as you get older, you know. And yeah. so if you are an 18 year old and you aspire to be a DJ or you know, 18 to 21 year old or in, in that sort of age range, then for goodness sake, leverage the people you know who are going out to become your fan base because very soon they'll be coupling up, you know, getting mortgages, getting kids, and there, yeah. um, and that that big social circle that you once had, you will never again um, enjoy unless you unless you're Gandhi or or, a, or, a, or, a, or some sort of religious prophet. Very true, very true. So I mean, when you're doing these illegal parties and you're building a name for yourself. There's obviously you're making money as as a promoter uh, 
is DJing becoming or promoting becoming almost like a job? But you're studying it alongside that. You're at school. Yeah, it was it was all when I was at university and sort of immediately after coming out of university. I mean, I think the. It's funny because eventually I leveraged enough um, of a fan base to start being booked by third party promoters. And in probably in the early noughties, I stopped promoting and just started being a jobbing DJ because the reality of putting on illegal raves, even though the law, it's a bit funny because I'm, you know, I'm a practicing music lawyer now. And the irony is at the time, the illegality, I mean, there were, it was much more gray area illegality. It wasn't until the sort of mid nineties where they actually really strengthened and made the law against illegal events much more robust. So I wasn't necessarily even breaking the law, but it was very stressful because you invested all this money and the police could come and knock on the door and say, no, you're not, it's not happening tonight. And the majority of what we did, did happen. But when it happens two or three times, you, and, and actually it was me fronting it up on all of those occasions, it is quite stressful. So um, it sounds like I was a great Robin Hood style renegade (laughs) and I did put a lot of these events on, but at the same time, actually, I was only too pleased um, once I built up sufficient fan base to start playing for other promoters. And there were two or three promoters in London who were really significant promoters who just happened to like what I'd been playing at my own gigs. So that was the kind of springboard, if you like. So what kind of gigs did you start doing and what sort of music was you playing? What kind of, what year are we talking about, Jules? Um, so we're talking like the very end of the 80s, the early 90s, when I'd stopped promoting myself and started being booked by third parties. I was playing, um, there were some huge raves. I mean, I was playing some, playing not every week, but I, I did a number of things with sort of ten or 20,000 people at them, which for that time was... Um, you know, it's the sort of stuff that the the, the, the Mail on Sunday or the, the Daily Mail was uh, absolutely appalled by. Middle yeah. England, as they describe it, I'm sure there's a Scottish equivalent, was yeah. absolutely horrified by. But it was it was groundbreaking youth movement time, and I was part of it. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, even in like Scotland, there was like all nighters, and not just one. There could be two or three in one weekend all holding maybe five to 10,000 people. It was just like everyone just wanted to be involved in this new sort of music or escapism or or, or whatever, you know? I actually played, I think um, I played something in Scotland around that time, the very early 90s, probably, yeah, probably in about 1990, which I think at the Plaza, I I, I remember. Plaza Ballroom, yeah. Yeah. and there was yeah a couple a couple of really big things and I that was that was just about the first time I went to Scotland and I and I realised what mad what a mad bunch you <laughs> lot are. <laughs> I, 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 I really I'm not just saying it because I, I really love Scotland so much. Yeah. I, I just wish the rest of the you know Europe was like that in terms yeah. of just having a brilliant time. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean the the. The one you, you mentioned there, that was possibly the Love All Nighters at the Plaza Ballroom, which are kind of infamous. It's now a block of flats. It's kind of yeah, like... Uh, as, as are many of the, the iconic dance venues. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there was uh, a promoter there called Scooby, who who basically, he, he was like one of the kind of founding fathers of putting big events on and great places and all that. But as, as the scenes kind of developing for you, was that what was your first gigs outside London? Are you starting to gig all over England? How did that well, build up? I I I joined Kiss FM, um, which was then a pirate station. Obviously, it's a long-standing and now national uh, sort of dance-ish music station. But at the time, it was a pirate station in London um, in 1990. And although it was only uh, no, I joined it in the in the late 80s. Actually, uh, sorry, it became legal in 1990, and it also had a, whilst it was still London and South East, there was also a kiss in Manchester. So that really, sort of, and I was doing Friday and Saturday night shows where I spent two or three years on Kiss the Pirate. It was then the first radio station almost in a generation to go from pirate status to legality. Yeah. Uh, and I was doing like the basically the Friday and Saturday night to the, to the two most high profile sort of going out shows, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and that got me a lot of a the radius to it was quite broad beyond London. It went out as far west as sort of Swindon and Oxford and down to the south coast. But it was also in Manchester and Liverpool. So obviously that that was a good way of sort of spreading one spreading one's name and. Yeah. 
plus one you, you know you start making records as well which um was a much more difficult it seems like a really easy task to make records now i mean i'm not saying it's easy easy but it was easy it's easy in terms of access to the hardware now because it's just there in logic in your laptop but at the yeah. time in order to make records it was a very expensive thing to do and so i created my own studio um i remember i, I spent 100 grand on a studio and i was only about 20 one twenty-two. I, I literally just borrowed from everybody. Um, yeah, but I was doing all right with, with DJ income. But you know, took everything. I, I was like, this is what I want to do. Uh, and the irony is that the the, the equipment, a you know, hundred grand's worth of equipment, then could be bought for the price of a laptop now. Just yeah, yeah. yeah. You could spend that on um, a desk back then, couldn't you? Like a mixing yeah, desk would cost um, that. So obviously, all those um, those factors are all significant. Um, radio making records and just increasingly getting on if you like the the circuit of super clubs um yeah. because the thing that because in the in about 94 uh there was what was called the criminal justice act which yeah. really really tightened up on the um the law against raves um, but there was a nice quid pro quo there because the government at the time actually allowed a lot of clubs to stay open much later than they'd previously been able to open i don't know to know how that happened there was a bit of justice in the world because um i don't know the powers that be have traditionally never understood clubland not even slightly but actually there were loads and not every city there were a couple because each city's got its own kind of ethos and some cities are a little bit more religious than others yeah or some cities kind of believe that you shouldn't be going out too late because it's kind of ungodly to do yeah. so but the, for the majority of the uk suddenly you had really late licenses and that was the springboard if you like for the super club era yeah, I mean the super club. You know, was was that was there a sort of time in your career when you're building up? You've got the radio show, and then was there a sort of time when you kind of felt not not that kind of I've made it, but like this is your calling. You are doing what you know. It's a full time job. It's was there was there a kind of pivotal moment in you when you thought? Yeah, oh, I, think, I think you've I think you've nailed it when you say, and I and I have this conversation with a lot of people in my legal practice. I think the biggest achievement for any musician is when they can it becomes that when you can live off being a musician um and you don't need to, it's not a part-time job it's not a hobby glorified hobby it's not a part-time job suddenly you can earn enough money to pay your rent and rates um and feed yourself uh and hopefully drive around in an old banger as well <laughs> but um but once you once you get to that point You've 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 achieved what very few musicians, and I'm using. De you know, some people will be offended by the fact I'm describing DJing as musicians, but I, you know, I definitely think we are musicians, yep. and therefore I think that that particular milestone is applicable to DJ life as much as it is to kind of conventional musicians. Um, but for me, there's been no. Yes, I was obviously very pleased when I joined Radio One. I was very pleased when I had my first top ten hit. Uh, very pleased when Kiss FM became legal. Um, very, very pleased when I had, you know, created my own long-standing um, club night in Ibiza. You know, branded club night in Ibiza, where not many DJs have done it in their own name. But, but the biggest, you know, they're all smile moments. But the the, the fist pump moment without question is when you manage to actually survive full-time out of music because it's just so rare so few people yeah. so few people succeed in doing it so when was that for you then what can i can you pinpoint it to a well, year or? pretty much immediately after i left university because i was already putting i was already a promoter yeah. i'm not i ironically having a sensible day job came a lot later um, <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're like sort of built building your name up with the radio work and all that did when did the traveling come into it you know obviously i want to talk about your productions and all that as well what came first was it international gigs or was it the records that you were then started putting out because i kind of see and i always have done like records is almost like a, a calling card you know if it gets to another club somewhere that's how they get you in and what came first for you? Was it traveling first yeah, as a I DJ? Think, I think records are a calling card, but I think there's another two big calling cards in my in my uh, pack of cards, if you like, which is, one is um, compilation albums, because I did some of the most successful yeah. compilation albums, dare I say, ever really, sales-wise, in dance. And also Mixmag, I think, was very important. You know, Mixmag's a great digital resource now, but, but back in the day, Mixmag was just 
the Bible yeah. wherever you went in the world. And it was exported in, in its physical magazine form. It was exported everywhere. So if you featured in Mixmag quite regularly, which I did, and I had a column for ages, that was a really good calling card as well. But it's not, I think I think brand building, you know, whether you're a DJ, you're an artist, you don't have your, uh, I don't know, your hallelujah moment, your eureka moment. It's all about brand building by a thousand, I can't think of a better analogy, you know, by, by a thousand cuts. You keep, you keep, pushing with your name in different places, doing different things. And then eventually, suddenly, everybody begins to know it or everybody you'd want to know it. But it doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's a very slow build. Yeah. So that's like a, it's a 10 year journey before you become that instant success that everybody suddenly re- recognises kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, graph. I think it's, uh, do you know what? I think it's why, you know, I wouldn't say that every DJ I've ever met, and I know most of the bigger DJs, um, is you know a great guy, girl or guy, but the majority of DJs, because it's such a slow journey, slow ascendancy, are actually quite all right. Because I think it tends to make you more humble if you've had a slow and steady journey, as opposed to certain sort of pop stars who can yeah. be literally, you know, busboying, um, you know, waiting, waiting in a restaurant or in a cafe one week, and then sort of having a top ten record the next, which isn't very good for you psychologically, I don't think. Excel podcast. The, the sort of success that you've, you've had, you've mentioned the compilations, you know, obviously the, the music as well, the residencies on the radio station, there's so many highs. Is there, I mean, how have you sort of navigated through? Because it's not a constant high 24-7, there are lows there. Have you, what's, what's the secret to navigating that? Or have you had your lows? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think the biggest low was um, realising that the, the, the better known you become, the more everybody's got an opinion about you. Yeah. And inevitably, a lot of that opinion might be quite negative and, and sometimes quite, sometimes justifiably negative, but for the most part, quite without reason. Uh, and you need to be tremendously thick skinned to deal with that. But I think that being thick skinned, it's awful to say it because I don't want to put people off who aren't thick skinned. But I really think if you're not thick skinned, your, your chances of succeeding in the entertainment industry are diminished to say the least because you've just got to be just got to be prepared to be knocked down and and step back up again um i from a i i I consider myself very lucky to be one of the people who psychologically doesn't find the kind of loneliness and the the up the highs and the lows if you like of the industry um too difficult and you know the, the story of avici god rest his soul of somebody who really did find the highs and lows quite difficult to deal with is is a lesson for everybody i think you know we're up to, up to a point i think our psychological makeup is part nature and part nurture and i think i was lucky enough on the on the nature front to be born quite stable and quite sort of sanguine about everything so i you know spent many uh, ironically did 20 years really of global touring of going probably every other week on a long haul tour uh, and, I, and, and actually wanting to travel on my own in the end, not really go with the tour manager because I just felt I'm very comfortable in my own company. And actually yep. tour managers can often cause more trouble than they, <laughs> than they, uh, than they told. Yes. Um, but I know that for the, for a number of DJs, the sort of solitude of it, the late, the incessant late nights, you know, whilst it's a dream that is unattainable or difficult to attain for many, um, it's, when you do reach that position, it can become a bit of a poison chalice for some. And I'm just, I'm very grateful that it never was for me. Yeah. I mean, did you, or are you still able, well, obviously it's, I think the older you get, it's easier to sort of say to yourself, like, this is my work. And you know, when I'm traveling, this is my downtime because I've got the show to do. Could you do that quite early on or did you, yeah, I was never the last man standing. Yeah, you know, I you know I like a bit, I like a bit of a, a bit of a party, um, but I was the last thing I want to be is the you know the, the last person on the dance floor at like nine a.m. That's definitely yeah. not me. Yeah, um, but maybe maybe because you've come into it as well with promoting, you've you've been more aware of you know when you're promoting your own night. You're, you're the guy making sure the lights, the sound, everybody's in, everything's great, before you can then go, now it's time to enjoy myself. 
Do you think maybe that's going to help you? Well, I think I think I was very lucky to be. I mean, most of the promoting, I'd, yeah, yes. Obviously, back in the day, I, we did everything and more, um, especially with warehouses because warehouses got nothing. Um, yeah. um, but for the twenty years of promoting, or near twenty years of promoting in Ibiza, obviously that's a different story because you're coming into very good venues that have got everything there, and all you're trying to do is carve your the identity of your night and put metaphorical bums on seats. You're not having to get up there and change the filter on the lighting. Check the tweeters haven't, check the tweeters haven't got a little crack in them. <laughs> well, I mean, how did the? I'm just trying to see. How? So, I mean, there's so many questions because you you you, are, you have got so many you know f- things going on you know, through, throughout your career, and at the same time, you know, how did it come about? Um, did you, was you poached by Radio One from Kiss? How did you jump to Radio uh, One? Yes, I was. I was poached by from Kiss, um, and. And that um, must have been a big thing for you, like, wow, because yeah, Radio, Radio was, 1 and... I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one with Radio 1 because obviously with Spotify, I'm not saying Radio 1's not important because it really is still, because, and the reason it's important is because it's the only, it remains the only station probably in the world for, for whom breaking new music is a virtue, not a liability. You know, yeah, many, yeah. Mo- many commercial stations treat anything that's different or anything that's taking chances as being risky, whereas Radio 1 views it from the opposite. And that, and for that reason, Radio 1's very important. But I think it's less important now purely because there's so many other um, access points to music, you know, Spotify playlists being the obvious thing. So I was sort of on Radio 1 at a time when I think it was at its strongest for dance music. I was yeah. on radio for 15 years, um, doing shows at the right times to be doing dance music shows. Uh, and it was a, and it was definitely an ambition to be on Radio 1. It wasn't an ambition growing up because I didn't really grow up listening to Radio 1. Being from London, when I was a teenager, Radio 1 wasn't that strong in London. Um, there were other stations that, ironically Capital which is much more commercial now was a lot less commercial yeah. when I than Radio 1 when I was growing up so so it wasn't like a lifelong ambition but it was definitely an ambition once Radio 1 had kind of nailed its flag to the post and said you know we are the definitive dance station of Britain and they yeah, to be fair to the bosses at Radio 1 they recognised the, the power of uh, the youth movement that is dance music pretty early on yeah did you did you free, did you have a free reign to basically play anything you wanted or was there any sort of commercial pressures to to play certain tracks and no there were no there were no commercial pressures but i think i think the the motto of any uh, specialist radio presenter particularly one who's on the sort of cusp of daytime as opposed to somebody who's at three o'clock in the morning yeah. is freedom with responsibility so you can't just you know you, you you live or die by listening figures and and the job you're doing as part one piece of the jigsaw puzzle of the of the the, the schedule um, yeah. and if you just go out on a limb all the time it's not really going to work not the, not the sort of show times I was presenting anyway yeah. I mean for me when I think of yourself and Radio 1 I'm thinking like late 90s early 2000s when it was just such amazing music it seemed to be like a, a never ending supplier massive tunes was what was what was the buzz period for you then or was there well, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I've gone in through various areas. You've got to remember when I joined Radio One, I'd already been DJing for fifteen years, yeah. um, and I'd been through the Acid House era when I was very young. So that was a very special time for me as well. Yeah. Um, I think the trance of the late nineties and the early noughties is obviously a very special time. But then I like there were, there were other areas I think are interesting during my tenure at Radio One. I think the electro of the mid kind of noughties is very some really good records as yeah. well. Um, and then as you sort of come into the and actually some of the early EDM records I like as well as you come into the latter part of the the sort of two thousand and ten and beyond. So. Um, 
it's very easy to view the past with kind of rose-tinted spectacles, but I, but actually we're we're still in a good place with dance music now. I mean, obviously I'm still on. My, I do my global warm-up syndicated show. It's now at nearly its 900th episode, so it's been wow. going for uh, between 15 and 20 years. It goes out on 80 different stations around the world, and it goes out on a podcast every week. So I'm still doing that. What it's not is a live show. It's a pre-recorded show, so I don't maybe have the immediacy of feedback. And of course, I've been doing my live streams for the last year as well, which have gone really, really well yeah. um, from my home DJ booth. Um, so there's still plenty of presence there um, yeah. in, in in the modern era, really. But what would you say if if you were to choose what for you? What was your specifically say Radio One? What was your sort of would you say the golden era for you, or or a, or a particular favourite time would be year wise? Well, I'm not I'm, I'm not a great one for right, too hard to... wallowing in the past. Really, I just yeah. I think you're only as good uh, as a DJ. You're only as good as your next gig. Uh, and yes, of course, there are amazing memories, and I count myself very lucky. And there are uh, some great photos to go with it, and some embarrassing videos on occasions. And, and you know, there are there are bits from posterity for posterity. But I'm really about looking forward. Yeah, I mean, another thing that you're you're credited for um, is breaking loads of tunes through your radio show as well. Um, did you did you ever feel um, pleased or like? Like you knew you, I was basically you were just believing in the music, or did you know that yeah, that? Could... Yeah, well, exactly. You're, you're, you are. My, my attitude towards records has always been that the wor- the the least credible artists can make the best record in the world, and the most credible artists can make the worst record in the world. Yeah. In other, otherwise known as, just judge everything on its merits. And if you love something, just support it. Because what are you, you know, apart from. You know, you are a bit of a glorified jukebox, aren't you? As a, yeah, a jukebox can choose the tracks, and yeah. it's really important. If you are a music fanatic, um, it's important to remember that because when you've been in the music business for decades, as I have now, it's really important to remind yourself why you were in it in the first place. Which is because you, you know it's about the music; it's not about the business. You know, focus yeah. on the first with those two words and not the second. Yeah, it definitely has two things in it. It's the music and the business. A lot of people think it's the one thing, but you focus too much on the business, you lose the music. Focus too much on the music, you take your eye off the business kind of thing. It's almost like hard to get the balance just right. Right, Which sort of, I suppose, brings us quite, segues us quite nicely onto my sort of legal career, which I've been doing for the last um, 10 years. Um, I'm a partner at a specialist music law firm in London's King's Cross. and, And that's what I've been doing during the day. And I, I got to the point with kind of global touring where I, um, it's amazing. I mean, I can't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of those memories for the world. And I still do a certain amount of global touring. My DJing is more focused around the UK now, but um, it's very tiring. And I, you know, I've got two kids, didn't see one of them grow up at all. Um, And so I thought, you know, I've got to be doing something during the day that I can be doing whatever happens with DJing. I mean, unbeknown to me, actually, the DJ career has gone up a notch rather than down a notch in in the past five years. But um, so I basically went went sort of covertly, um, largely when I was traveling on on planes, really, um, swapped a gin and tonic or a, a Bloody Mary for like law books and spent five five years retraining as a lawyer because my my law degree by that point had expired its uh, effectively expired its useful life then did my professional qualifications and then started as a trainee at a law a different law firm where i am now and um i think it's been a really i mean there are so many reasons why i'm pleased i did it one because it, your brain needs exercise as much as your body does as you grow older. And um, for me, the the, the the mental training of doing it, um, I just think was so beneficial to me as a person. Yeah. But also, on a, and I, I don't need to go into too much detail necessarily about what I do as a music. I mean, I can basically represent all manner of different entities within the music business. I've got an incredibly strong roster of current, very hot, uh, DJ producers who are, you know, dominant at the moment. But on a, on a broader level, rather than rather than necessarily focusing too much on that, when you to be a successful artist, um, it's it sounds a bit unsavoury to say it, but in truth, what 
The good thing about being a lawyer is you, you're able to kind of look around. You really get a view from the mountaintop. So you hear the, you get a view on the secret lives of very successful artists. And, and there I say, I've been pretty successful in my own artistic career. And you look at the kind of common denominators. What are the common factors that make those people successful? And like it or hate it, being quite selfish is a really, really big part of it. Um, and it doesn't have to manifest itself as really nasty selfishness. Sometimes it does, but um, more just being absolute rock solid belief in yourself at the expense of everything. You're so hungry that you, you want to get there. Now, for me, and obviously for me, I've had to really focus on myself for, for most of my DJ career to suddenly therefore become a lawyer where you, where yes, Maybe the, the fact I'm the my my client's lawyer might have something to do with the breadth of my career and the fact I'm a known name as a DJ, but actually they don't want to hear about me at all. Yeah. What they want me to be doing is focusing on them. So a, so there's a, there's a really nice element of you know batting the kind of ego, taking the ego out of of me and just calmly listening to what they've got to say because me telling my DJ war stories when I'm when I'm in in kind of lead lawyer mode is irrelevant. Whereas yeah. if I take my uh, experiences throughout my career and apply those to to um, help guiding the careers of the people I represent. That's a different story altogether. That's that's very relevant. But it's but it's very. Oh, I don't know. It sounds a bit idiotic, but it's it's very soul cleansing to actually suddenly really focus on the careers of others when yep. you've spent you know half a lifetime or more focusing just on yourself. I mean, also with you running the, the record labels and stuff like that, were you taking, uh, is that giving you experience on the business side, contracts and stuff like that as well? Did that? You wouldn't thought on? so, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm going to hit it now, but no. But what, what was strange, what I don't get, right? So I ran I ran labels for Universal for 10 years. For so anybody listening, if you want to name what they were, for people who one are- One was Manifesto and one was Sirius and- Huge, um, huge labels. Nobody ever, ever told me anything about the business. It was like, all I knew is what I had to pay for the for the records. I didn't know anything about royalties. I didn't, I literally learned nothing. I mean, I signed some really big hits and it yeah. worked. So if you sign hits, then you're kind of the golden child. But um, no, I learned nothing. And I didn't, didn't learn a great deal about the business affairs side of things, even from the many records I put out myself. It was only when I became a lawyer that I had to, very quickly brush up on it, and now, um, now I'm dare I say I'm very much on top of my game when it comes to that sort of thing. And um, because being a, being a specialist music lawyer is part part hustler, and obviously with my my promoter background, that's that I've got that in the DNA. It's part hustler and part really understanding the deals, the, the spectrum of deals that are available to people. Because yeah. you are fighting somebody's corner big time, and I really enjoy doing that. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing as a, as an artist coming through because when you're sort of young and and just eager to get a record out or whatever, effect nine times out of ten people would sign the life away just to get a chance to put a record out or whatever. It's not really until you're you're further down the line that you realise what publishing is, recording, and all all these sort of income streams. Absolutely, but I do. But I, I I do. You're, you're 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 completely right. It's like. Um, there are many, I, I, I'm going to do it, but it, some people get turned off by it, but there's a lot of football analogies in yeah. in the music business. And, you know, these, I don't know, when you're a five-year-old that gets signed for Man United, you, you, you've done nothing, you know, you're, you, you've done you've done nothing. You, you just um, need to uh, hope that you proceed to the first team. And similarly, if you sign that first record deal, really, you've done nothing. It's the, the first pigeon step in a number of different kind of leaps and bounds that you need to make in your career. So um, therefore, so please don't just sign the first thing that gets put in front of you. And, and it happens all the time. Yeah. And unfortunately, the, the, the moral of the story is that the, the nice sort of A&R guy who loves your tune, wants to hang out well in non-COVID circumstances, wants to hang out with you, wants to really buy into what you're about, have a beer with you, do all the rest of it, is not the nasty uh, grey-skinned lawyer who's drafted the contract that that A&R puts in your hand. Yeah. Um, 
you very rarely get given a contract that is just nice all round. Nothing. You know, if, if I, I mean, I look at hundreds of contracts every month, um, hundreds of just of record contracts, let alone all the other ones. And I virtually never see something that doesn't need at least some work, some improvement, yeah. hasn't got some little nasty there. And more often than not, there's there's a whole um, there's a whole ant's nest of nastiness. Yeah, I mean, especially just now when it's I guess it was the same back in the day. It was so easy to set up a small runner records and release them, but with the digital contracts and all that now, and there's no really much input from smaller labels, but they still want to sign up artists for three album deals and no advances and all that. Kind of half known that the artist is going to just sign something to get a record out when really the, the digital labels aren't do, doing anything other than just farming it out to the, you know, the, the digital stores kind of thing. There's no really real investment, but then obviously the bigger the label, hopefully the bigger the advance but then that's where we need the legal advice to, to get the right you know advice on signing the yeah, deal and I think you know I, I mean I can only speak for myself but I um, if somebody if I, I, I've done calls like this today alone if, if a young artist gets in touch and says I've been given this contract um, as long as it's a sensible artist who sounds like they know what they're vaguely know what they're doing I'll look at the contract for nothing and I'll say you know either it's awful or it's okay and then if it really needs work then I might charge them for it but I'm I'm all about just I'm in it for the long game I'm not trying yeah. to cash in in the short term at the expense of the long term yeah. but obviously a lot of artists wouldn't realise that lawyers have, lawyers have got a fairly bad name really due to the sort of lawyers that I am not, you know, the ambulance yeah. chasing kind of personal injury type, <laughs> type, you know, only one rung down the, the kind of moral pecking order ladder from the state agents in the, you know, in the estimation of um, yeah. the public. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm a world apart from that, but yeah, I think it's really important to be fairly open to people so that they can get you to have a quick look at their, their contracts. But a lot of yeah. people just wouldn't do it because they'd assume that the lawyer's going to charge them yeah, crazy amounts of money and not. Yeah. So, was that a conscious effort for you to, to move back into the law side, the legal side of things, to sort of future proof yourself? As obviously, like you were saying, like, you know, to exercise your mind. But were you just kind of looking at the future? Is there a time when you will stop or move away from DJing? Because, like you said, over the lockdown thing, it just seems to have turned everything up a notch and you know the interest yeah. and the want is there again for look people want to hear you and obviously people can't wait to go to shows but yeah I mean I it's an interesting period sort of in the immediate aftermath of being on Radio 1 I stopped being on Radio 1 in 2012 there was definitely a drop off in gigs but then from about 2015 onwards my my DJ workload's gone up to certainly got as many UK gigs as I've ever had um yeah. I don't do as much overseas stuff, but I do a few, you know, few UK oriented things like Ibiza's or Dubai's or a few of them, but I'm not, I can't have my legal, I can be a lawyer during the day and, and do UK gigs. I can't be a lawyer and sort of be on different continents. It doesn't really work, but yeah. So it was a, up to a point, it was a future proofing thing because I didn't know what would, what would happen. Um, unbeknown to me, actually, the, the market, if you like, the 30 to 50-year-old 50, 50 market is incredibly strong. And that's where my market lies for obvious reasons, because they was they were the sort of people who were going to see me when they were sort of 16 to yep. 21 years old in the in the 90s and the in the noughties. Um, but you know, they might not be the ones who are going out every single week, but there's enough of them going out once a month to, to create a huge amount of marketplace. Yeah. And again, I think with your, with your live streams and all that that you've proved over this last year, you know, people are sitting at home, whether they've got their feet up or they're dancing in the living room, just getting right into the tunes again and all that. It's, and hopefully that's going to project when the when the clubs go open back again, you know, they're all going to want to go out and, and dance again. Obviously not every weekend, but they'll pick their nights and yeah, well, I've definitely got a lot of. Uh, I've got a very full diary. You, you know, if if, if the um, I don't know if the unraveling of lockdown occurs when it's um, supposed to happen, um, certainly in England anyway, um, 
I'm going to be a busy, I'm going to be a busy boy. I laugh when I describe myself as a boy, but you know, you know what I mean. As long as you're okay for working on Monday. <laughs> so I mean, do you know what? I, I the other, the other, the other area where there's been a bit of, you know, a bit of luck, a bit of serendipity has been that as I've become a lawyer, yet my DJ career has continued to flourish. Um, for whatever reason, all the events seem to end much earlier now than they used to back in the day. There's way more daytime things and way less kind of 6 a.m. people stumbling out of places, foaming at the mouth type scenario. <laughs> um, and that's good for me because I I think I, yeah, there, were, there were times when I would do 20 years ago. So I was in my 30s. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't super young at the time then, uh, but where I might do three or four gigs in a night, regularly did three gigs in a night, occasionally did four, which would, you know, involve starting at 9, 9 p.m. in one city and sort of ending at 7.30 a.m. probably in London. Um, but thank, thank, I don't think I'd, I'd still be around to tell the tale if I was yeah. continuing to do those sort of hours now. And that's a shift, isn't it, now? I mean, where, where do you see things happening now with COVID? Do you see things getting back to normal end of year or what are you thinking? I, you're a better man than me if you can um, predict. I, I think I think things will happen. I've got plenty of things in the diary. The issue is whether there'll be an element of social distancing. There's going to be events. Yeah. There's going to be outdoor events. There's going to be an element of a summer, you know, probably from a July, from July onwards. Whether they'll be fully socially uh, undistanced and, ma and without masks or not, who knows? But yeah, there, there will at least be some sort of hybrid of... Um, going out that's for sure do you think hopefully by next year is there going to be surely there's going to be a normal a return to what we know or what we did know I 100% I, I believe that for yeah. sure uh, just I mean just wrapping things up how have you dealt with um, lockdown uh, working from home and then what spurred you to do the, the live streams was it um, it just, I, I like DJing. I, I wanted to connect with people. I wanted to, I mean, we, for most, for the majority of it, we did it for free. I've gone onto a paid platform now, but I still do. I'm still on YouTube, Facebook and yeah. um, Twitch. So it's still available for free. I didn't want to take it off free. It's just on a, a slightly, we do like 45 minutes free and, and the full two hours on a, on a paid platform. I, I just wanted to be out there doing something to kind of make this whole intolerable shit a bit more tolerable I guess <laughs> I mean you can see when you're doing it and all that as well you're enjoying it how did you feel at the first couple because I'm sure the majority of DJs and all that have experienced some sort of live stream be it a phone or a professional setup. as I'm as asking you that question I'm realising you've been doing radio so it's almost like radio but there, there is a performance well, yeah, yeah, I, suppose, I suppose it is um, I, um, I it just seemed very natural I didn't um, I, I don't recall even thinking about it very hard we just yeah. um, lockdown happened and within a fortnight we were doing live streams and we've been doing it ever since every Saturday Brilliant. well listen it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Jules thanks for taking the time thank you my 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 <laughs> <laughs> How's the weather over there? Is it good? It was good. It's because it's good at home at the moment, isn't it? I believe. Yeah, it's not too bad. It was here. It was twenty-one today, but it's raining. It's going to rain tomorrow, so very annoyingly. And is it okay for travelling? Or are you travelling and work? Or you know, um, I. So I've got a place in Mallorca and a place here. I've been. More, I spend more time in Mallorca than I do here, actually, because Mallorca's got. A, I don't know how you know. To, given your name, I don't know how well you know Mallorca. But uh, yeah, yeah. But your pronunciation is the correct pronunciation, as you know. But in Scotland, everybody, the the, the double L's been a Y is not a thing. You know, it's just Mallorca. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know the island too much. I've I've been just as a holiday. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, it's just there's just more to do really. It's more of a, it's Palmer's a city. You got you know, it's Palmer's a city the size of like Bristol or Leeds, like yeah. the size of a big British city, or like Edinburgh, similar population sort of size. You know, so there's a lot more to do there. Here is a bit more dead when there's when there's not the craziness of the, the three months in the summer. Yeah, um, but just just. Uh, 
and I, if you don't mind, if I could just ask you about the residences, because I don't even think we spoke about Judgment Sundays or anything. You got a couple of months we could. Yeah, yeah, no worries, of course. How did the sort of Judgment Sundays come up come about? Was that your idea, or was you asked to come over? Because they were absolutely massive. Well, I've been doing. Um, so Judgment Sunday started in 2000 and lasted for sort of on on a weekly basis. It still exists now, but on a weekly basis, it lasted for about 15 years. Um, I've been going to Ibiza every week and just doing a circuit of a rotational circuit of different clubs, doing Cream, doing Manumission, doing um, Clockwork Orange, Miss Money Pennies. Um, and uh, the owner of a venue that had that was pre- previously considered to be, dare I say, it, quite a naff San Antonio venue called the Star Club, um, said, "Well, we we bought it, and we are doing it up." And they basically gave me the opportunity to design a lot of the club, uh, thereby making me obviously feel very sort of um, involved in what was going on. And um, I thought, well, let's let's take a chance and let's just do it. Let's not do any of the other people's gigs. Let's just do my own night and see what happens. And I mean, literally from week one, there was a queue around the block. It was amazing. So it was. I think it, you know the timing was right. My name was very strong. The um, San Antonio didn't really have that much choice. Clockwork Orange had been about the only thing that had lasted a while in um, San Antonio with any strength. So um, yeah, it, and the rest is history. And was that the first foray back into promoting from back in the day, or had you kind of done was, other things? Yeah, it, was first, it was the first time I promoted anything since in in the best part of twenty years. Um, so I was a little bit nervous before we started, but you know, I had a very you know, unfortunately not around with us anymore. But I had a very good business partner who was very driven and sort of lived on in Ibiza full time. Yeah. But you've got to have. You've got to have some pretty strong roots here to promote something. I mean, I speak fluent Spanish. Um, I had a house even, you know, throughout all of that. So um, I think it, it would be more difficult to do that in Ibiza if you were simply flying in and flying out five minutes later. Yeah, yeah. And is it something that is going to sort of continue? Like you're saying, it's well, not. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we've continued to put on events both in Ibiza and out of Ibiza under the, the Judgment brand. Um, and it's still a little bit unclear to see what unclear what's going to happen in Ibiza this summer. Um, thankfully, the Spanish and the Europeans in general seem to have really ramped up their vaccinations in the last couple of weeks, whereas for ages they were really running behind the British Isles, you know. So mm-hmm. um, we will see what happens this summer. Okay, though. Well, to wind things up, is there websites or socials that people can... Uh, yes. Um, so, yeah, judgejewels.net is my website. Um, Real Judge Jules on Twitter and Instagram and just Judge Jules on Facebook. I'm sure everybody knows them already anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Brilliant, Jules. Thank you very much. Cheers. Stay safe. See you later. See ya. Facebook, DJ Malakali. I've been up for four days. I don't want to write and run anymore. Oh, wow, that stuff's incredible. Excellent podcast.